Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. In the 90s, Desco Records was having mixed success with their old-school-style funk and soul records. Generally, when they released something as-is, people weren't interested. But when Desco pretended that these were actually lost vintage soul records, they couldn't press enough copies. Later, in the ashes of Desco, Gabriel Roth, half of the label, formed Daptone Records with Neil Sugarman, no longer pretending to release vintage soul and funk LPs, Daptone built an incredible tight-knit scene with musicians and singers that felt this music in their gut and honored its legacy. Sharon Jones, Charles Bradley, and rocksteady group The Frighteners. The label's backing band, The Dap Kings, even worked with Amy Winehouse on her landmark Back to Black record. This whole story is the subject of the book it Ain't Retro, Daptone Records and the 21st Century Soul Revolution by music journalist Jessica Lipsky, our guest today. We discuss the unlikely story of how Daptone Records' vintage soul sound went mainstream, and we inspect the various crevices around it. Ska music rears its head on more than one occasion. My only real introduction to Daptone Records was the Frighteners. Oh, yeah? But I also was sort of aware of Sharon Jones, just because I thought she was kind of just like a breakthrough artist. Yeah, she has an interesting story because she was older when she became came to prominence. But in the context of the story of Daptone's records, it's a much bigger story than just this woman suddenly has a career in her 40s. Yeah. The one thing I've noticed going to the Daptone Records site is that a lot of their records like don't stay in print for very long. Mm. I really want to get a copy of the Frighteners record, but I think I'll probably end up having to pay <laughs> pay a little bit extra for it. <laughs> it's pretty cool. They do a good job of making the records look old or, you know, kind of playing to that aesthetic. So people who are really into buying old records, they kind of have that same feeling of buying these brand new records by these new artists. My records all end up looking old anyways, because I actually listen to them instead of just collecting them. All right. So in uh, April 2019, you wrote... 
you wrote about the fourth wave of ska for Billboard magazine. I did. I did. That was my ska manifesto. Yeah, you were just ahead of the curve of all the ska articles that are happening in 2021. Yeah, yeah, which is, um, you know, as as a journalist, when you're like pitching stuff that you love and everyone's like, I don't know, I think it's too niche. And then you see them all happening years later. You're like, damn, I don't know if I'm too good or like just really off base with all of this. (laughs) I'd love to hear your thought process whenever you first had the idea for the article and stuff and what it was specifically you were noticing that you thought it was a good idea to do that? Well, you know, like you guys, like I'm a big ska fan. Like I grew up um, listening to a lot of uh, third wave stuff, um, got into more of the like trad scene DJ stuff um, in my, in my late teens and twenties. Uh, and um, I just been following new bands so I noticed that there were like a lot of groups um, in um, in LA that were popping up and um, groups in New York, and it felt like a real continuation of something. So uh, that combined with like the Pick It Up doc, uh, I felt like it was time. It's like somebody needed to write something definitive about what was going on, and um, and so I did. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just sort of using like my tribal knowledge combined with folks that I was excited to see live and, you know, friends, bands, that sort of thing. How was that article received? Um, well, uh, my cousin sent me a Reddit link, um, where like the subreddit for ska and, uh, apparently people were just groaning about the headline, which is how the genre's fourth wave has managed to pick it up where the nineties left off, which I didn't come up with. I thought was, you know, all right. Um, but, uh, after, you know, some eye rolling, um, folks there were like, wow, this is actually pretty comprehensive. And whoever wrote this knows what they're talking about. So that felt good. I think overall it was received pretty positively though. I have no idea how it did for billboard. Um, I, I don't think ska is necessarily getting a ton of clicks or was at the time. Yeah. I like that your article did focus a fair amount on a, the little bit more of the, the trad ska scene and sort of the, um, LA Latino scene as well, which I feel like as much as um, it's interesting and I'm appreciative that these new articles are coming out about ska and that my book gets mentioned, I feel like those components uh, are not getting mentioned much in those articles, which is, um, I think, a shame. Yeah, um, I I agree. I mean, it's, it's funny because I wouldn't necessarily think that they were separate things, like that there's a lot of crossover, but um, there, there definitely, uh, there is some serious separation. And I mean, I came up listening to a lot of ska punk as I think anybody who came of age in like the nineties and two thousands did. Um, but I really love soul music. I love a big band. I love orchestration. I love vocal harmonies. And that to me has a little bit more longevity, at least to my ear. So I've been really passionate about it. And that's something that I've tried to follow, uh, as an adult. So it was important to me to have that be a big chunk of the story. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I wrote, I did an article in 2015 for Playboy on the LA's Latino scene. And um, I, for one thing, I was like really amazed by the energy there. Cause I, I, I got to go to, um, I got to go to one of those festivals and I was amazed at 
that there was young, there was young blood there and it was, and then they were enthusiastic. That was, I felt like missing from the ska scene outside of there. Mm-hmm. It's just, just the ex- the extent of which that scene was isolated and separated just really boggled my mind because I'm watching these bands. I'm going like at the festival I was at ska wars. They mm-hmm. had, you know, they had traditional bands like delirians, you know, which were one of my favorites of that scene. They had like ska punk bands, all of the different styles. It's like, they don't sound different than the bands who are outside of that scene. So I don't understand why these bands are not like hitting outside of the area. I mean, some of it's probably because they're not touring heavily, but still, I don't know. It's, it's just something that's interesting to me that it's like a there. I mean, there's probably a cultural difference, but it's not, you don't really hear it in the music in a way. Yeah. It's, um, it's it's very similar to other things that you you would have heard, but I I think that there's just sort of a a lack of interest in like mainstream appeal. Um, I see a fair amount of ska punk shows out here in New York, and um, you know it's it, it's too very separate from the more trad scene, from the uh, lovers rock or rock steady scene. Uh, everything's a little bit siloed. And I think that uh, ska has been so entrenched in um, this punk community that you are more likely to see the attendees of that show be really into cumbia as well as a, instead of Rocksteady, for example. Yeah, definitely. While we're on the subject of Rocksteady, I want to talk about the Frighteners because you wrote this book about a damp tone and this is the one band on that. I, I assume it's the only band, right? That, kind of were in that style. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Daptone had been wanting to put out a Rocksteady record because it is the most uh, soulful uh, form of, of reggae. And uh, it had taken a while to find something. And then the Frighteners come along with a helping hand from Victor Axelrod, a.k.a. Tikla, and it was just a match made in heaven. Um, the Frighteners record is just all killer, no filler. It's, it's oh yeah, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for many reasons, it's a shame that Dan Klein, the singer from the Frighteners, died. But it's it's extra shame when you think about what they could have have done and the fact that he passed right before the release of the record. Oh, definitely. That's such it's such a good record, and it's you know it's interesting too because I had actually found them. Uh, through a suggestion for after listening to the Delirians, the Frighteners came up. Oh, so there, there was some cross pollination there going from you know L.A. to New York. Oh, totally. And I mean, these are cultural capitals of of the states, right? So people go back and forth. And you know, something I found as I moved from the Bay to New York is the difference in. Uh, era, like what the intro, the predominant interest is in like, ska and regular reggae related subcultures. Um, my theory is that there aren't as many Caribbeans in California. So people get stuck in this sort of like 60s era, like Jamaican oldies thing. Um, in New York, you have a much larger Caribbean population. And it's not just older folks. It's people that came up in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and you get a much wider array of musical sounds. So I feel like whenever I get to see an L.A. band play in Calif- or in, in New York um, or go out to California to see um, live ska and reggae, I am so enthused because I really love those oldies. 
in New York, at least in, you know, in the nineties and eighties, like it, it felt to me like there was a strong jazz component that translated into the ska scene. Even some of the bands that were not as like traditional, like it felt like that, that was a uniquely New York component to ska. Is that still a case in New York? Is like jazz sort of a component to, to ska? I don't know if you're aware or not. I'm just curious. I mean, jazz is absolutely a component to like the foundation of ska, right? Um, yeah. Ska bands or big bands or jazz bands. Um, but I, I mean, I would say there's certainly an element in groups like the um, New York Ska Jazz Orchestra in bands like Top Shotta Band. Uh, they're definitely a ska and uh, sometimes like roots group, but their horn lines are very jazzy. Or um, my friend Anat Pratan, who has a great nine piece rock steady band, um, is a wonderful arranger and certainly incorporates jazz in there. I'd say more jazz than punk for sure. Yeah. Now the Frighteners, was there a scene that they came out of? You kind of mentioned that. Uh, and I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the context of what the band came up in. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the Frighteners were, were a pretty big band in New York reggae scene among folks who were in their like twenties and thirties. Um, now this predates my, my time in New York. So I'm like only speaking from what I've read and what my friends have said, but um, you know, the Frighteners played around. They were uh, definitely part of this sort of um, extended crew around uh, Deadly Dragon Sound System, a great uh, record store community, um, and like lots of other bands and players. Um, so I, I think that they were certainly like making their mark. And something that I've noticed is there aren't there aren't like a, a ton of rock steady bands or, you know, yeah live or actual bands in general there's a ton of collectors there's a ton of singers but um a good reggae band is is hard to find and i think that um dan klein's voice in particular is like very very striking yeah i love they the album is so haunting i mean i'm not sure if i'm totally just getting their story mixed up in my head when I listen to it. But I, f I feel like even if there wasn't a tragic story attached to it, I feel like it still would sound haunting. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point. And I, I think you're right. Like um, that's one of the beautiful things about rock study though. Right. It's kind of heart wrenching or it can be. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is also a lot to do with uh, Victor Axelrod's production. Something that I was uh, hearing, seeing some threads in, in, in uh, some of the Facebook ska groups recently was that they were, I'm not sure the truth of this, but there was some talk about how they were noticing Rocksteady getting thrown around a lot more recently to like bands wanting to self-describe as Rocksteady was becoming a trend because um, there's baggage with um with ska being goofy and then there's baggage with reggae being sort of like stoner hippie music and since rocksteady is kind of a a genre name that most people aren't don't even know they're not even familiar with a genre called rocksteady it's like a little bit of a blank slate to say yeah yeah we're we're rocksteady that's what we do even if it's <laughs> even if they're not actually rocksteady <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, there is like some cultural knowledge to Rocksteady, right? From a funk and soul perspective, you know, Aretha's been thinking about Rocksteady for a long time to a big old audience. But uh, that's, that's interesting. I haven't, 
I haven't really seen that, but I'm I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's there's always so many bands that shy away from wanting to have ska associated with their name. So they'll just grab for anything. Like for for a while there it was, you know, brass rock was getting thrown around, which <laughs> is probably the grossest the grossest one of the of the ways you could yeah label your band yeah let's start a brass rock band guys that sounds great it'll be so metal (laughs) so metal (laughs) the story of the frighteners though um the the singer he didn't know that he had the the uh, als during the recording that it wasn't until after or can you explain some of that story yeah so um Dan or Brucky, as a lot of folks called him, um, he was recording and experiencing some symptoms uh, from the disease, but he was undiagnosed. He uh, was forgetting things. He was falling down. Uh, he was having strain on his vocal cords. And a lot of folks just kind of chalked it up to him being a complainer. And at the you know very end of recording, he did um he, he did get diagnosed with ALS and I think he, at the time he was 33 maybe 34 um so they sort of rushed to put this record out before he passed because it was very clear that he was very ill and this is a fast uh, degenerative disease so they had to use all of these scratch takes and you know maybe not exactly the heavy vocals that they would have liked just because he wasn't able to sing um which maybe is what makes the record sound so haunting um, or part of the reason why. Um, so after they record this album, they're putting it all together. Um, Dan goes to see uh, Sharon Jones at Celebrate Brooklyn, which is a big free festival just down the street from my house. And um, he's in a wheelchair and um, you know, it's, Friends and family were concerned about him going to see this music when he was in like a really bad state. Um, but it was the last thing that he saw before he died. Wow. And it's, and I mean, it is quite tragic. Like I, I, I didn't know him. I think I maybe met him in passing one time, but um, you know, he, people are very passionate about, um, about him and his memory. And um, he touched a lot of people's lives. Um there's also a lot of unreleased music that folks are sitting on, working on, but find it like difficult in one way or another to uh, to finish and put out. Getting ALS is like, if I think about it, that's like my nightmare way to uh, to face death. Mm-hmm. The idea of losing losing mobility to the point of maybe even not being able to move. Uh, I just. I can't, I just can't imagine him facing that. Yeah. I, um, I, I can't either, but I, I think that from what I understand, he was fairly, I don't know if resigned is the right word, but, um, you know, he, he coped with it. He was like, we're going to do the best I can while I'm here. He got a lot of tattoos, hung out with his friends a lot, recorded, um, lived his life hard and like loved really hard until he couldn't anymore. Yeah. There was a, there's a, part in your book where you basically said that um he was this sort of pessimistic guy Mm -hmm. but that like pretty much changed in the face of this illness that he was 
friends were saying that he was like this becoming like optimistic in a weird way, like really determined to uh, enjoy his life completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that just like got to me when I read that. Just imagining, imagining the uh, power of facing this and to have that sort of emotional change, if you will. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. I feel like I'm a pretty positive person. And I feel like if I had a um, terminal disease, I would probably feel real down and wouldn't want to do anything and uh, would just feel very bad for myself. Uh, So I I, I think that shows like a real strength of character, not on my part, on Brecky's part. Yeah. You're from the Bay Area. Where where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in San Ramon, which is in Contra Costa County. super fun um (laughs) so i but uh as a result i grew up going to like to see ska punk shows and other punk shows at the danville grange hall oh yeah um which i have very fond memories of my dad lives down the street from there now and every time i pass by i'm like yeah i saw somebody there i got fucked up in the the parking lot there um And uh, and going to shows at uh, Gilman and Slim's and uh, Great American, all those things. I have lots of fond memories. After I graduated high school, I moved to San Francisco for college, then to Oakland for like 10 years, and then to New York. Nice. Well, backing up to the Danville Grange, my strongest memory of playing there is some <laughs> kid getting completely naked in the pit and, <laughs> and running in circles. What's your most specific memory of the Danville Grange? Oh my God. Wow. Well, I, um, do I wish it was that maybe, uh, (laughs) you know, it's, it's odd. Like when I think about it and I was a big journaler, uh, in high school, so I probably have some more specific memories there, but to me, it was, it's just like a, a vibe. I, it's a whole blur of different shows and being so excited to go on a Friday or Saturday night or both and see all my friends and, you know, um, just like wild out a little bit. Um, it, I, I feel, and maybe this is just being wistful about salad days, but it, it's more of like an evocative feeling than a specific memory. Yeah. Yeah. And then did you hear that Slim's got shut down? Oh my God. I almost thought it was a April fool's joke because it just seems so bad. Like, cool. You're going to shut down um, an Epic club with a wonderful history. um, that I I, I mean, I've been to more times than I could possibly count and then call it YOLO, make it DJs only. (laughs) Like the PR is so bad (laughs) for that. Yeah. It really seems like some sort of bad joke. Yeah. Like somebody has to turn around and be like, Hey, just kidding. Um, you know, I'm I'm going back out to the bay for my brother's wedding, and um, I'll be very curious to go by um, what is it, one thirteen, thirteenth Street, one eleven thirteen, something like that. Whatever. And, and see <laughs> yeah. the line of people in polo shirts waiting to go inside and pay way too much for drinks. You know, if I just want to have a good cry, hang uh, <laughs> out there, yeah. it'll be wonderful. That'll work. And then. Living in Oakland, where did you live in Oakland? Um, I lived in North Oakland for most of the time um, off of San Pablo and like 61st, um, MLK and like 55th. Um, I lived on the east side of the lake for a little while, which was lovely. Um, But I I had a, I miss that a lot. Um, My old roommate just sent me some pictures from like my first apartment out there and uh, today. 
It was a nice, nice stroll down memory lane. Was it all normal, normal apartment living situations with like only one roommate or was it like any weird spots where you had like <laughs> nine Hella roommates? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't live any in, in any situations like that, any punk houses okay. or anything. But um, if you want to talk about weird situations, my first place with my roommate who we lived together for six years, um, a bullet came through our window. Oh like, yeah. Wow. second or third month that we lived there and uh almost got her um so that was i'm glad she's not dead she's very healthy very alive um but that was probably among the weirder situations um yeah and and when you lived in oakland did you have a, a car <laughs> yes i had a chevy cavalier which i called my jew canoe and how many times was it broken into and or stolen? <laughs> Never stolen. Thank God. Broken into many times. Um, here's a fun story. I was DJing <laughs> um, in San Francisco at Vertigo on Polk Street. Okay. Uh, I used to have like a monthly there or something. And I parked my car um, in the alley uh, across from Hemlock and or next to Hemlock. And um, I came back out. And the window was busted on my car, the front passenger side window. They had rifled through everything, didn't take anything. And I was like, great, cool. Now I just got to get a new window. Well, these people were not trying hard enough because in my trunk that day, I had like two laptops, purses, a bunch of shoes, and um, all those things were fine. Um, uh, one time my house was burgled by a, um, friend who was obviously not a friend, um, who robbed me of like a backpack and backpack an ounce of weed and then went down to Alameda County court the same day to file a small claim against me. Um, that's a whole wow. separate story. <laughs> that sounds like a great friend. <laughs> yeah, he really was. He really was. Um, he's the grandson of Philip K. Dick. Fun fact. Wow. I, I had my car, uh, Never lived in Oakland, but uh, I went to see Run the Jewels at Fox Theater probably like four or five years ago. And uh, for some dumb reason, I had my backpack with my computer in the car. Um, I should not have taken that with me. Yeah. So somebody broke in my car during the show and took that. Oh, no. And yeah. you've, since, you've since learned, though, like in the time, uh, in the before time when you could actually go to shows, Aaron would, would stop by my house if he had his backpack with him and yeah. leave it with me. Oh, and then smart. go and then go do what he needed to do. That's what you do when you're going to go to Adam <laughs> Davis's house. Everyone out there. Adam, where do you live? I live in Alameda, but I lived in Oakland for about 10 years. Awesome. Whereabouts? Uh, I lived in the AK Press Warehouse at 23rd and MLK. And then I lived uh, over on uh, 29th over behind the grocery outlet. Oh, behind the grass out. Yes. Yep. Yep. So it was weird because my neighborhood was like on the front side of it was grocery outlet. And on the back side of it, they had just put in Whole Foods. So you could really, really feel the gentrification happening. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's pretty wild over there now. Um, the last time I was out was in March and, you know, such a weird time to be back home or really be anywhere um, with the pandemic. But um, I remember driving on... Yeah, I guess maybe 29th Street and just being sort of shocked how much it had changed. There was like a new CVS on the corner and some fancy buildings. And um, I remember going to see Nell's Klein at the 500 Club, was it? Or something like that? No, 500 Grand. Um, 
was like a warehouse or something back in the day. I, I don't know. I could be remembering this incorrectly, but um, just a lot of change, a lot of change over there. Yeah, it's it's definitely changed a lot. Some of it for the better and some of it way for the worse. There's uh, really the the homeless encampment problem has become. I mean, how is it over in New York right now? Like here, it's just there's we basically just have shanty towns set up now. Yeah, um, there are certainly homeless people um, in New York, no doubt. But um, there, Giuliani uh, pushed a lot of those people to the margins, um, and I, I don't, I don't know what happened to them. I mean, homelessness is an increasing problem. I think after the pandemic, um, there's always challenges sheltering people, but it, it's certainly. Certainly not like what you see when you go to the Bay. Like I am, I'm quite shocked by it too. Yeah, it's um, really upsetting. I just had like one quick note I forgot to mention. Uh, I read in your book, in, I think it was in the Frightener section that while they were while uh, Daptone was looking for a rock steady band, they had recorded um, a song with the Hep, Hepcat singers. Whatever yeah. it takes. Yeah, tell me whatever you know about that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's, uh, there's too much, um, to say about it or much, much, yeah, much history, but, um, a friend or two mentioned that, uh, Greg Lee and Alex Dessert were brought in to sing backups on James Hunter singles and, uh, on that James Hunter record on whatever it takes. And, um, ultimately for whatever reason it was scrapped, but there are definitely tunes that you hear when you listen to that record, I think about the song Karina, for example, which has a really nice little rock steady swing to it that I could 100% hear their vocals on. Like it's not on the record, but I could, I could imagine where they would go. Um, what, what I wouldn't do to hear some Daptone produced Hepcat stuff. Like I, I love Hepcat. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't like Hepcat. If you have ears, you like Hepcat. Yeah, if you don't, you don't have a soul. <laughs> I want to talk about Daptone a little bit more. So I, what I find interesting um, is this, the concept of soul, soul music, that, that there's lots of variations of soul. There's neo-soul, there's R&B, there's all these different things, and they come in and out of fashion. And then, um, you know, there's, then there's what Daptone was doing, which was a bit more of a nod to the uh, original, like, 60s soul and stuff. And, um, and then there's Northern Soul. That's, like, uh, something that's not particularly popular in the U.S., but much more popular in the U.K. But what is your view of Daptone's story in, in this uh, place in the story of soul? Yeah, sure. I, I think that Daptone, without really trying, uh, kind of tapped into a subculture of folks who are deep record collectors who actually do like Northern Soul, for example. I think that Northern Soul is kind of a, a fairly big thing or big subgenre um, among soul fans. But what Daptone did was just play the shit that they liked. These guys came up fascinated by soul records, by nasty funk records, by jazz, by boogaloo. And seeing no avenue to really play that live, they created it themselves. So I think for a lay audience, I would definitely characterize what they do as like, quote unquote, revival soul, or to be even 
lamer about it, um, retro soul, right? But what they're doing is not retro. It is very much speaking to the fact that the sounds of the 60s and 70s are um, still alive. They are being iterated on. Uh, they are still resonant and still highly, highly danceable. I mean, to see Sharon Jones and sit still, uh, how, how, could you, how could you possibly do that? Yeah. Before Daptones, it was Desco Records, or at least with um, just um, Gabriel, one of the two people that would become Daptones, correct? Yeah. So Daptone was founded uh, in 2000 by Gabe Roth, who's a bassist producer, engineer, and Neil Sugarman, a saxophonist, and she does mostly business. Um, So prior to that, Gabe and a guy named Philip Lehman had founded a label in the mid-90s called Desco Records, and that was sort of the proto-Dap Kings. They they called themselves um, the Soul Providers. Desco also had a number of Daptone players who were working in different bands. Homer Steinweiss, for example, the drummer from Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, was in a group called the Mighty Imperials as a teenager. And Antibalis uh, was also, you know, hanging around in this like pre-Desco era. Sharon Jones was around. Fields was around. There was really a sort of culling of a scene prior to the start of Daptone Records, which really was not a plan for Gabe Roth at all for a long time. One of the things I found interesting about the Desco years was that they would release records and then they would pretend that they were lost old records. And then that would (laughs) get people interested, but then they would release records and just be like, here's a band that exists right now. And then people wouldn't be interested. Right. I think it's sort of an interesting parallel to how people might be embarrassed about ska right? At the time, if somebody said, oh, there's a funk band playing, they would, even people in funk bands would be like, nah, I don't know, I don't know. Um, but there is such this deep culture of record collectors. Um, as we all know, some record collectors can be really pompous and, you know, having uh, the most rare thing or having the deepest knowledge uh, is quite a big deal. So no one wants the new shit. They want the old, roughed up, fucked up shit or the new stuff that looks as such. So I, I really enjoyed hearing about how they would put out this like, monster Lee Field single and no one wanted it. So they had to make it look old. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's silly. Yeah, it's funny. Um, and so in those years, you, you already mentioned that Sharon Jones is around, but her, her story, how she got involved with them I, is such an amazing story. Do you want to tell it? Yeah, um, completely. I, I, I'm also fascinated by it. So Sharon had been trying to make it in the music industry in one way or another for most of her life. She sang in talent shows. She sang in her church choir. Um, she eventually became choir director. Um, but in this oft-repeated refrain, she was uh, too short, too fat, and too black for music. She sang, or for you know the mainstream music industry. Um, she sang in some R&B bands. She sang in a wedding band. In the meantime, she was working um, as an armored truck driver. She worked at uh, Rikers Island as a uh, prison guard for some time um, and worked at Macy's. And just doing all of these, you know, odd jobs 
and singing in her wed- the wedding band on the side when Gabe Roth and Phil Lehman are putting together um, a band for Lee Fields and they decide they need some backup singers. Well, Sharon's boyfriend at the time, um, Joe Urbeck, uh, says, oh, my, my girlfriend will come in with a couple of her friends and they'll sing backups. Well, the next day, Sharon Jones shows up just herself and Gabe Roth is pissed. Like, I thought there were going to be three of you. And she says, why pay three when you can pay me? And just lights the whole place on fire. Um, so she does the backups for Lee Fields. Um, I think it was uh, Let a Man Do What He Want to Do. And then there's this other track that they're working on, some like blowfly, blowfly-esque um, number um, called Switchblade. And she's like, what's this, this track about? And they tell her, and then she just starts vamping. And I love this song. Um, she's like, I'll cut you up. I'll cut you so bad. I'll cut you so bad. Your mama won't recognize you. I'm gonna slit you where the good Lord split you. Now step away now. And whenever I, uh, whenever I'm real pissed, <laughs> sometimes I put that on and I, uh, <laughs> I just try to channel that energy. But, um, I think that was a sort of like meeting of, of the minds that uh, was unexpected, but just really, really gelled. And from everything I understand, she came into the fold like very quickly and was just good to go. Like she had met these guys who really liked her voice, liked her performance style. They dug the same kind of records and they could all hang. Um, and it's a, it's a really beautiful thing. Like if, if not for Sharon Jones, we would certainly not be having this conversation right now. Oh yeah. Now, didn't she show up in her security guard outfit with her gun to that <laughs> session? <laughs> that I don't actually know, but like, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, <laughs> um, I know that she used to carry a, a gun in her fanny pack for a long time. Yeah. Cause I, so I got to interview Sharon in uh, early tw- uh, 2013 for an article I did for the Santa Cruz good times. And she, she was like such a, such a warm, kind, funny person. And I was rereading my article just, I was curious. And then I, 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 that little factoid I said was in my article. So I don't know if she told me that or if I had read that online, but that's, you know, anyways, I I read that from me. Uh, Um, I would love to, I would love to see that uh, or to read that. Yeah. I, uh, a friend of mine who I used to be on the radio with uh, was recalling the other day um, how he saw Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings at the Elbow Room in San Francisco and was on a date and was like making out really hard uh, <laughs> with his date, having a grand old time. And they're sort of like closing the place down and they pull away and Sharon Jones is like right there. <laughs> <laughs> just uh like teasing them being like oh it's and he's like oh we're so sorry and she's like no oh, it's all good you're having a good time blah 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 well i think there was more to that story um uh, than that but uh yeah. he has some very positive associations with your jokes as well being a warm and loving person i love i just you know i love that she defied the every single every single thing that you know that is supposed to be the case for being a celebrity being a pop star and um, even to the point where when she got cancer, she would just let herself be bald and, you know, no shame about that whatsoever. Like, and she was just loved, you know, 
it wasn't a problem, despite what everyone probably said, you know, all the people who said no to her in the past, like, you know, she had a big fan base. It wasn't a cult thing. It was a pretty sizable fan base. Yeah. I mean, again, to see Sharon Jones on the Dab Kings live um, is beyond spectacle. I, I think like it is some of the best, some of the best shows I've ever seen in my life hands down um yeah. just because that energy is so so radiant and the band is so tight and her dancing is so great and i mean like it, it's it's quite incredible to think about how as you said she took like every every no every poor turn in life and just really turned it upside down um and it's super impressive um re her being uh, her being bald after cancer, um, I was quite shocked to learn that the first scene that they shot for the Miss Sharon Jones documentary was um, her getting her head shaved and and trying on wigs. Like what a what a thing to come into as a Unitarian, as a somebody who's going through a major life event. Yeah, I, I wonder. Like you know, I was thinking back to the fact that I interviewed her in early 2013 and. Um, she announced in like June, I think that year that she had cancer. I'm wondering, I wonder if she knew at that point when we were talking or not. From what I understand, um, she didn't know for a long time. They were really, really hustling on the road and in studio. And um, she started complaining that she was tired or that her eyes were yellow or that she was itchy. And, um, you know, Sharon could be a diva. Um, So people just (laughs) thought that like, you know, she was in a mood or that she was just old and she was tired. Um, and then you learn that those are the symptoms of, of having cancer. Um, so, yeah, it's entirely possible she she didn't know. Wow. Like if you if you didn't hit your stride until you were 50 something like years old, would you let a little weird itching or exhaustion stop you? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah, I can't imagine like, you know, having that kind of opportunity at that point. It's funny because I mentioned the Run the Jewels show where I got my computer stolen. And I remember when I was at that show, that was when their third album released. That's when they really kind of blew up, right? And uh, my impression that entire show was like, man, these guys, uh, they've been around their whole life doing rap. They've loved this music. Um, But right now in their 40s, they're getting... (laughs) They're having their moment and you could tell that they're like, they know that they have to enjoy it because they've felt like what it's like to be under the radar for two decades or whatever, you know, it's Mm -hmm. just a different thing. Like when you're 22 and you blow up, I'm sure you're amazed at the experience, but you don't, you don't really have, you don't have what you don't have the experience of being rejected for decades to compare it against. Right. Whereas, you know, some, you know, if you're Sharon Jones and your forties or fifties, and you're becoming a pop star, I'm sure it's just like, wow, you know, yeah, this is amazing. I'm going to just, I'm going to enjoy every second of this. And from all accounts, she absolutely did. Yeah. No one wants to be in a small van with a bunch of dudes traveling across the country <laughs> and whatnot, or, you know, like working for, for days on end and, you know, just racking your body. But, uh, but she did, they did. And I think that, 
that joy was felt, you know, from the front of the, the edge of the stage to the back of the room, without a doubt. The mainstream moment, would you say, is when um, they worked with Amy Winehouse, the Daptone band? Um, yeah, when the when the Dap Kings uh, were Dap in the back Kings. of the band, they did yeah. um, like six songs for Back to Black, and then then Valerie uh, for Mark Ronson's versions. Um, you know, it really depends who you talk to. Like, and, and I thought that this was very interesting uh, in reporting how divided the label was or the folks behind the label and people in the larger community were. Um, Amy Winehouse was like certainly the biggest money gig uh, to that point and probably today to their, their biggest name that they've worked with. But, you know, uh, Gabe Roth will say that, yeah, it was great, but I thought that her songwriting was a little too self-involved and, you know, just because we did this with her didn't bring us any more fans. Uh, Sharon had trouble wrapping her head around it because she feels, and I feel rightfully so, I would, I would feel the same way that, you know, this like young white girl is going to take her band after she's worked so hard for it over 50 something years. Um, you know, uh, Homer Steinweiss and uh, Tommy Brennick are both very proud of their contributions to it and think it's like a good pop record. And then all of a sudden this sound just like explodes across, you know, pop music and uh, soul becomes popular again. So, you know, it's it's like probably like when Ska had its moment too. I think there's probably like a crisis of confidence among diehards. Mm-hmm. I mean, when when Amy Winehouse first came out, like I wasn't into it. I thought that she was sort of trying too hard and aping a style that I saw as like, this should be Sharon Jones. Um, And, you know, as I've as I've rethought that that position, I realized that I was uh, I was quite wrong. And I mean, Amy Winehouse is incredibly talented and just a very different vibe. Yeah, I, I wasn't into that album either when it came out. I just kind of, um, I just, I more just didn't engage with it. I wasn't interested. But yeah, when I gave it a shot, like really serious shot, I was like amazed at how brilliant it, the record is. What's the story of how she knew about them and, and why she wanted them? Do you know that? Yeah, so it was, uh, it was Mark Ronson. Um, so you know, Mark has everyone sort of like operating in adjacent musical circles um, in in New York. You're a player, you're like out, you might bring your horn with you, you might, you know, bring your guitar or whatever, sit in on a performance. And um, allegedly Dave Guy, trumpet player, who's now with The Roots, um, knew Mark Ronson and had dropped off a demo that Sharon Jones and Dap Kings did of Sign Seal Delivered, um, which wouldn't be released for like eight years um, after this fact. And Mark Ronson dug it. He had just started to work with Amy Winehouse and was sort of looking for a way to make her music sound a little older, but also contemporary. Um, He talks about saying like, I was trying every studio trick and it just wasn't working. They both really liked the same things, you know, Shangri-La's 60s soul, um, but getting it to, sound legit was hard so he plays her this cover of sign seal delivered and she loves it and he's like great i'm gonna set up some studio time so they finished doing um demos and vocal tracks or whatever and mark ronson goes over to the house of soul on troutman street and they knock it out in a few days with 
Amy's vocals, just like in their headphones. Did so I know Amy was like up and coming and, and she was a pop star, but I don't did they did everyone know that it was gonna take off the way it did? No. Or was that um, a surprise? <laughs> yeah, I think it was a surprise. One of my favorite quotes um from Binky Griptite, who was was friends with Amy Winehouse. It's just like, yeah, you know, I mean, she probably told us she was a star or whatever, but we were like, man, she ain't Marva Whitney. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> Even though, again, like they were sort of operating in the same circle, she was in this like British soul scene that had been very receptive to Desco and early dab tone. Um, but yeah, I think they just sort of thought of it as like one and done. And this is one of the interesting things I found about Daptone in reporting and um, as a fan is that a lot of these guys are like really nonchalant, uh, very cool, very nonplussed by by things, and um, everything is is pretty chill, <laughs> which can which can make it difficult, right? Because as a fan um, and as an excited reporter, I'm like, oh yeah, what was it like to do this thing? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I love I love those musicians who are like, well, it was like a. You know, when it was like a day of work, you know, you're like, really? That's all you got for me? <laughs> yeah. You're like this album that I love so much. And man, I want to feel these things. Um, yeah. So uh, I could I could imagine that for a lot of them, it was sort of the same regarding Amy. Then she broke and that might have changed a little bit. I remember hearing Amy Winehouse the first time on tour in the UK and and being like, Oh, this is this is tight, but I never thought it would cross over to the United States. And then when it did, I mean, there it blew up and everybody loved it. Were there other acts that were trying to do the soul sound at that time that were getting getting in like being able to ride the coattails of Amy Winehouse? I mean, I I, I would I would posit that um, there were a ton of of like pop acts that came afterwards um like duffy um one can make a case for adele um you know mm. folks like fits in the tantrums um you know and let, let's say this happens all around like 2007 or 8 to to 10 um like you definitely see a sort of renaissance in this sound and in, in pop mixes you know um I had this this whole theory that I really needed to cut down for the book because it felt a little too academic and probably too half baked, but um, that Amy's popularity kind of coincided with some retromania. The people were really obsessed with '60s fashion because of things like Mad Men, because of um, movies like Dreamgirls, and it just all sort of fit right in together. And I don't think that that was necessarily intentional um from amy's uh record company but uh or record label rather but uh it was a happy coincidence yeah no i i don't think that's totally half-baked because i think that you know i it's it's kind of weird in my opinion uh because i do think it's actually a, a a brilliant record but her as a star like the some of the reason that maybe she got that opportunity in the in the mainstream pop world was because of the retro elements that, that mm-hmm. she was kind of um, packaged that way. So yeah. I think it definitely helped her have that chance to have that larger audience. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you know, she had a st- sort of like striking look. 
um, which if you are involved in like a sort of punk subculture, you might not think is that big of a deal, but to mainstream pop audiences to see like a really small woman with a big ass beehive and like, um, you know, short sixties dress singing, you know, soul songs with like its deep voice. I mean, that, that wasn't happening. (laughs) Um, and, and and yeah, I I think that that combined with, um, all of her sort of like offstage antics, um, did make her really popular, made her sort of like tabloid fodder. Yeah. But she was like, what's interesting is that as much as I love her record, she was really tapping into something that was retro. It was retro for her because of, you know, because of her age and, and everything. But then you have Sharon Jones. It's not retro. It's um, it's not any, you know, she's she's singing the music that she's always saying. Or, you know, that she's playing the music. She's not in any sort of trend or anything like that. It's just. And um, that's doesn't Sharon Jones have like her sort of larger moment. I mean, she's been she's put out a couple records, but isn't it her third record? The one that sort of has a bigger audience. That's the one that broke. Um, and I think that's the first one that I heard, um, too, um, at some point. But. Um, yeah, I think that she, you know, took a bit of a backseat while the Amy business like played its course and certainly that helped a little bit, but like, man, 100 days, 100 nights is so good. Um, it's, I, I really, really dig that album. Um, Sharon, Sharon's a patient woman, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So what I find interesting is like Amy Winehouse definitely benefited from a retro thing whereas sharon jones did not but it's similar music and similar musicians was it a different audience the similar audience was sharon jones benefiting from this sort of like moment of like oh okay we're open to retro soul i mean what what is your take on that i mean i think in hindsight sure they did benefit from it um i think the audience for um amy winehouse is certainly more broad she got a bigger push. Um, she was on pop radio. Um, she was just more identifiable, I think, to a wider variety of people. You know, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings and Dap Tone Records artists were getting like airplay on NPR and community radio and had been by at South by Southwest. But, you know, um, I think the concept of like music discovery as we know it today through Spotify and such things wasn't as present, wasn't as acceptable. So you, at that time, so you would kind of need to be a bit of a head to pick up on Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Like, I don't know. I was working at a radio station when I, I picked up their one of their record for the first time. I, I don't think a lot of people have that experience, you know? Yeah. That said, I remember going to see an ex- uh, exhibit on Amy Winehouse at the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco some years ago. And it was so popular and so crowded and so disgusting to me. Even like even as somebody who wasn't a big fan, I just felt like they had invaded this woman's space and then put her on a pedestal and um, you know sort of propped her up as this icon of quote unquote retro soul music when 
I don't think she ever wanted to be. And she's also, she was a big two-tone ska fan. And she had yeah. the, the ska EP, uh, which I think was a, was that like an unofficial release? I'm not really sure if, I don't really understand the uh, specifics of that EP. I'm not too sure either, but I think it, I think it was. I think like her official releases were, were Frank and then Back to Black. So she said in, 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 in a Rolling Stone interview in 2008, she told the interviewer that uh, her next record, which uh, there wasn't a next record, was going to sound like Back to Black, but also have some ska songs on it. That'd be pretty freaking cool. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine, can you imagine ska getting that, that kind of mainstream push where it's Amy Winehouse? <laughs> wow. Yeah, I I can't imagine, but man, would that be like the dopest ska record? I mean, that that's yeah. probably the kind of ska that I would want to hear. It'd be a little too polished, I think. But if if she was like the Phyllis Dillon of <laughs> of 2010 or something, that would be that would be awesome. It could be awesome. It could be terrible. It could be um, culture culture vulture. Well, I mean, she was a fan, though, so I don't know. I mean, it's not like, she, and, it, and nobody would have, <laughs> nobody would have like was would be asking for a Scott record in the mainstream right. in 2010. So <laughs> very true. I mean, I guess more like vultury from the side of the record label. Yeah, but it would have been interesting too because, like, a lot most of the time when Scott flirts with or is mainstream, it's usually on the punk side. But she would have came at it from a two tone slash soul side, so that would have been a different version of it you would have seen in the mainstream that we haven't really seen in the mainstream in the u.s yeah absolutely i mean i think that a lot of folks like myself would probably turn their nose up at this at first and then, <laughs> this really slaps <laughs> yeah <laughs> so charles bradley comes into the picture what like 2011 or that's that's when his first album gets released right yeah. but he was around for a while before he released um some singles as like charles and the bullets um in 2006 2008 um but yeah he like really comes onto the scene at that time with no time for dreaming which like what a record um yeah yeah um there's this like great scene um in in the book that i really like where charles he was around he's this sort of like weird itinerant handyman um, who was also performing uh, as a James Brown impersonator. So uh, Daptone were supposed to record with the singer, the mighty Hannibal did not work out with him. And they're like, Oh, well, why don't we um, call this weird guy, Charles that like somehow showed up at my apartment one day and they go to see him perform in, at this club in uh, Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. And it was cold. So they had to pick up a jacket. So they get this like long leather jacket and then something happened to Gabe's knee. So he's like using a cane, like walking with a limp. And the, him and uh, Neil Sugarman arrived to this club looking like a couple of pimps out of like sweet, sweet backs, badass sound. <laughs> and uh, and like very much fit the scene. <laughs> I, I love like he's well, a couple of things about him. One, I find it so interesting that like it, in a way they show that Sharon Jones was an anomaly, like this idea that, oh, there's there's these talented people who didn't get their chance in the, in this allotted slot that we've decided as a culture is the prime period, which is your twenties. But, you know, as an, as someone older, yeah, they still, they're still talented. Why not? They can become stars. Like he, he showed that, that, that it wasn't just a one thing that it's like 
possible for more people who are older to become stars in music, but also just the, um, his ability to channel emotions in a, such a raw way is just like gut wrenching just yeah, to listen to and watch him. Oh man. I've, I've definitely said before that like he is, he's not an easy performer to watch. Like you, you see Charles Bradley perform and it's like getting punched in the gut and then being like, God, please give me another. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's intense. Like I haven't seen a lot of music like that. I was watching this footage of him on a, like performing live on a, like a radio show or something. And he was a, uh, performing changes mm-hmm. and so you know that's a black sabbath song and the, and the interviewer goes well, you don't strike me as a black sabbath fan and he just goes i didn't know who they were but i just really mm-hmm. like the lyrics <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh yeah he just made it his own i mean his version i like the black sabbath version actually but his version just totally destroys their version yeah i can't listen to that version because it's (laughs) so fucking sad it just makes me want to cry every time i've gotten a little bit um um inoculated to it i guess since it's the uh it's the theme song for big mouth that's the strangest like here's a song that's about death and when he sings it he's singing about his mom dying right and so then you take it and now it's a song about puberty (laughs) um yeah well hey puberty makes us want to cry sometimes right um i mean that's that's another thing that i was very um surprised and enthused by was just like how so many of these daptone artists and then by extension artists in the revival soul and funk scene have made their way into popular culture yeah um, like there's a Verizon commercial that uh, share that uses this land is your land. Um, share the same song was in that movie with George Clooney up in the air. Charles has two theme songs um, been sampled really heavily. I mean, the list goes on and on. What's his other theme song? Um, do you know the show Barry on HBO? Yeah, it's a great show. Yeah, they just use these like you know few stabbing horn lines uh the name of the song that they they use escapes me right now um but it's very brief it's like less than 10 seconds oh okay but good for them (laughs) yeah sure they'll get paid (laughs) yeah i was surprised like looking at some of the youtube videos like i just i just didn't i just didn't really register in my head like oh like oh this sharon jones video has uh like millions and millions of views i'm like wow like i don't know i guess i didn't I knew she was popular, but I didn't know it was like that popular, like multiple videos like that. And Charles as well. Yeah. I love um, watching the videos where she's performing in Paris circa like 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, Just like a big crowd seems super on. I I mean, I think at this point, you know, Sharon Jones and Charles Bradley are, kind of part of a popular canon that's a little bit more accessible in a way because it's closer in time than some of the Motown greats, you know? And that, that might be a, uh, a bold statement, but, you know, you can find a million videos of Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings and it feels very exciting and new. And you're like, whoa, what the hell is this? I think those things for, 
Aretha Franklin perhaps are a little fewer and further between, or it's just a little more of your, your grandparents' music in a way, or your parents' music. It's interesting. Do you think like, I don't know, this is just more of a philosophical question, but it's like a lot of times, I mean, maybe this is part of why we have this stereotype. You have these bands or these artists and they put all, all their great music out in their twenties. And then it kind of feels like well, maybe their later music's not that great, you know, but um, then you have these older artists who didn't have that opportunity when they're younger. And then they come out with amazing music. Is it just like, like you run through all your brilliance <laughs> <laughs> when you're young and if you don't get to do it when you're young you still have it just waiting on deck to just you know put out like your you know, your five brilliant records maybe i mean sure there's probably a finite <laughs> amount of creative magic yeah. out there um <laughs> fuck anybody who's able to just do it forever it's just not fair uh, <laughs> but but i mean like in the case of sharon jones for example i mean she has you know voice and personality and movement but she didn't write those songs you know yeah that's true Gabe Roth had been writing them since he was in his 20s like and folks have been arranging them so I, I don't know I, I think that it probably just depends on who the person is I, I think there's also something to be said for artists you know being hungry you know if, if you if you get your hit in your in your 20s then you're not hungry anymore, right? You might become a little bit complacent. And if you never get that opportunity, then you just stay hungry all, all the way through into your 50s. Right. And like maintaining that hunger is mm -hmm. really difficult. Like, I, I don't know, how many mus musicians do you guys know who have day jobs and have been working on an album and it didn't go anywhere or, you know, it, it got stopped for some reason and they have to still maintain that drive while also like, you know, working at Whole Foods or, yeah. you know, whatever it is they do. I mean, that's, that's a lot of determination. And I think that maybe that's the differentiating factor, right? It's not like, are you old or young? It's just how determined are you? Is that part of your personality? I just want to ask you a little bit about, about writing a book. Was this the first, the first book you've done or? Yes. Yes, it is. And how, how did you find the process of writing a book? Um, well, I'm certainly one of those writers that often hates writing and loves having written. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I love interviewing same. a reporter, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah same. It, do, I, I know like precious few writers that love writing. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I trust you. Um, but um, I... I love writing when I have the muse with me. I really love interviewing. I'm a reporter. I love to research. So that part was, was really great. Um, I did most of the writing of this book during the pandemic, um, during the first half of it. I lost my job like right before the pandemic and was stressed out. Like I cannot go through this job hunt again. And maybe I should take the time to just really focus on this book. And then the world shut down and I got a book deal like right before uh, New York went into lockdown. So um, being unemployed and uh, being in the middle of a global pandemic is like really great structure for writing. I didn't need that much structure, but I'm grateful for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very pleased that um, you guys have been to, Scott shows um, and punk shows at the Grange, like 
Wow. <laughs> I'm going to ask because I've never been there. So, Adam, how many times this is Link 80 that played? Is it Link 80 or Destiny? Yeah, Link 80 played there at least, at least twice when I was in the band. Maybe okay. three times. And then Dessa, definitely one time. Wow. So you've played this place like four times. But my biggest memory is I, I feel like there's a Denny's <laughs> down the street from it. And we, we had gone. Yeah. So so um, my girlfriend at the time, Liz, played drums in a band called Lucky Strike. And she came down from Sacramento for one of the shows. And she brought two members of this hardcore band, this Christian hardcore band called Anguish Unsaid. Um. They what were a like, great name for Christian hardcore. Yeah, bands. yeah. They they were the they were really they were good until they would like they would straight up really actually bust out a Bible on stage, like between songs. <laughs> would and you like, rather a Bible or a waffle? Or off a waffle. Oh, I don't know. Uh, do you have to eat the waffle? Oh, good question. You have to eat it. I'd rather a Bible. Uh, I, I, the the thing that I remember is is sitting down with them afterwards and, and eating and and them being blown away by the fact that there were kids in our audience that were like skanking and then we would get to like a breakdown and they would just transition straight from skanking to like, you know, windmills and like hardcore. <laughs> they were completely blown away by the, by the idea that you could do more than one thing at a show. Like it didn't just have to be hardcore. I definitely have some uh, memories of chuckling at like boys from my high school doing windmills and being very angry and being like, man, you look, you look dumb. <laughs> go on with your bad self you do you you do you 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 go ahead and dislocate your shoulder <laughs> <laughs> but you're gonna look so hardcore one you're gonna look so tough doing it yeah I'm, uh, I'll, I'll be passing by there very soon um I, I have not seen any signs of any shows there in years though which is very sad for kids of the san ramon valley and beyond yeah, I'm not sure that kids do um like Grange uh like VFW hall shows anymore. I feel like if they do do shows it's more like punk house shows. Yeah. Um or they or you know just generator shows. Yeah, I have I have no clue. Like I I mean, I'm 33. My friends that have kids, their kids are young. Mm-hmm. Um my older friends that have kids, I I don't I don't know what they do. Uh <laughs> but like <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's not it's not going to Grange Hall and certainly not going to Slim's. Um, I often think about what what my life would be like if I knew that there was a soul scene in San Francisco mm. when I was a teenager, because I've been into soul music for most of my life, but I just didn't know that I could engage with it. Yeah. Um, I thought that there was like really only punk and ska and like that was it. I really should have gotten a fake ID a little earlier. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to in defense of ska if you haven't already subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com you will get episodes of the in defense of ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox If you would like to order my book, In Defense of Ska, you can go to Amazon, request it at your favorite indie bookstore or library, or go to clashbooks.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying, Ska, now more than ever. Thank you.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.